This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 2 On the Negative Spirit. Much has been said and said truly of the monkish morbidity, of the hysteria which has often gone with the visions of hermits or nuns. But let us never forget that this visionary religion is, in one sense, necessarily more wholesome than our modern and reasonable morality. It is more wholesome for this reason, that it can contemplate the ideal of success or triumph in the hopeless fight towards the ethical ideal in what Stevenson called, with his usual startling facility, the lost fight of virtue. A modern morality, on the other hand, can only point with absolute conviction to the horrors that follow breaches of law. Its only certainty is a certainty of ill. It can only point to imperfection. It has no perfection to point to. But the monk, meditating upon Christ or Buddha, has in his mind an image of perfect health, a thing of clear colors and clean air. He may contemplate this ideal wholeness and happiness far more than he ought. He may contemplate it to the neglect of exclusion of essential things. He may contemplate it until he has become a dreamer or a driveler. But still, it is wholeness and happiness that he is contemplating. He may even go mad but he is going mad for the love of sanity. But the modern student of ethics, even if he remains sane, remains sane from an insane dread of insanity. The anchorite rolling on the stones in a frenzy of submission is a healthier person fundamentally than many a sober man in a silk hat who is walking down Cheapside. For many such are good only through a withering knowledge of evil. I am not at this moment claiming for the devotee anything more than this primary advantage, that although he may be making himself personally weak and miserable, he is still fixing his thoughts largely on gigantic strength and happiness, on a strength that has no limits, and a happiness that has no end. Doubtless there are other objections which can be urged without unreason against the influence of gods and visions in morality whether in the cell or on the street. But this advantage the mystic morality must always have. It is always jollier. A young man may keep himself from vice by continually thinking of disease. He may keep himself from it also by continually thinking of the Virgin Mary. There may be question about which method is the more reasonable, or even about which is the more efficient. But surely there can be no question about which is the more wholesome. I remember a pamphlet by that able and sincere secularist, Mr. G. W. Foote, which contained a phrase sharply symbolizing and dividing these two methods. The pamphlet was called Beer and Bible, those two very noble things, all the nobler for a conjunction which Mr. Foote, in her stern old Puritan way, seem to think sardonic, but not, which I confess, to thinking appropriate and charming. I have not 
the work by me, but I remember that Mr. Foote dismissed very contemptuously any attempts to deal with the problem of strong drink by religious offices or intercessions. It is said that a picture of a drunkard's liver would be more efficacious in the matter of temperance than any prayer or praise. In that picturesque expression, it seems to me, it is perfectly embodied in the incurable morbidity of modern ethics. In that temple, the lights are low, the crowds kneel, the solemn anthems are uplifted. But that upon the altar to which all men kneel is no longer the perfect flesh, the body and substance of the perfect man. It is still flesh, but it is diseased. It is the drunkard's liver of the New Testament that is marred for us, which we take in remembrance of him. Now it is this great gap in modern ethics, the absence of vivid pictures of purity and spiritual triumph, which lies at the back of the real objection felt by so many men to the realistic literature of the nineteenth century. If any ordinary man ever said that he was horrified by the subjects discussed in Ibsen or Maupassant, or by the plain language in which they are spoken of, that ordinary man was lying. The average conversation of average men throughout the whole of modern civilization and every class or trade is such as Zola would never dream of printing. Nor is the habit of writing thus of these things a new habit. On the contrary, it is the Victorian prudery and silence which is new still, though it is already dying. The tradition of calling a spade a spade starts very early in our literature and comes down very late. But the truth is that the ordinary honest man, whatever vague account he may have given of his feelings, was not either disgusted or even annoyed at the candor of the moderns. What disgusted him, and very justly, was not the presence of a clear realism, but the absence of a clear idealism. Strong and genuine religious sentiment has never had any objection to realism. On the contrary, religion was the realistic thing the brutal thing, the thing that called names. This is the great difference between some recent developments of nonconformity and the great Puritanism of the seventeenth century. It was the whole point of the Puritans that they cared nothing for decency. Modern nonconformist newspapers distinguish themselves by suppressing precisely those nouns and adjectives which the founders of nonconformity distinguished themselves by flinging at kings and queens. But if it was a chief claim of religion that it spoke plainly about evil, it was the chief claim of all that it spoke plainly about good. The thing which is resented, and, as I think rightly resented, in that great modern literature of which Ibsen is typical, is that, while the eye that can perceive what are the wrong things increases in an uncanny and devouring clarity, the eye which sees what things are right is growing mistier and mistier every moment, till it goes almost blind with doubt. If we compare, let us say, the morality of the Divine Comedy with the morality of Ibsen's ghosts, we shall see all that modern ethics have really done. No one, I imagine, will accuse the author of the Inferno of an early Victorian prudishness or a Podsnapian optimism. But Dante describes three moral instruments, heaven, purgatory, and hell, the vision of perfection, the vision of improvement, and the vision of failure. Ibsen has only one, 
hell. It is often said, and with perfect truth, that no one could read a play like Ghosts and remain indifferent to the necessity of an ethical self-command. That is quite true, and the same is to be said of the most monstrous and material descriptions of the eternal fire. It is quite certain the realists, like Zola, do in one sense promote morality. They promote it in the sense in which the hangman promotes it, in the sense in which the devil promotes it. But they only affect that small minority which will accept any virtue of courage. Most healthy people dismiss these moral dangers as they dismiss the possibility of bombs or microbes. Modern realists are indeed terrorists, like the dynamiters, and they fail just as much in their effort to create a thrill. Both realists and dynamiters are well-meaning people engaged in the task, so obviously, ultimately, hopeless, of using science to promote morality. I do not wish the reader to confuse me for a moment with those vague persons who imagine that Ibsen is what they call a pessimist. There are plenty of wholesome people in Ibsen, plenty of good people, plenty of happy people, plenty of examples of men acting wisely and things ending well. That is not my meaning. My meaning is that Ibsen has throughout, and does not disguise, a certain vagueness, and a changing attitude, as well as a doubting attitude, towards what is really wisdom and virtue in this life, a vagueness which contrasts very remarkably with the decisiveness with which he pounces on something which he perceives to be a root of evil, some convention, some deception, some ignorance. We know that the hero of ghosts is mad, and we know why he is mad. We do also know that Dr. Stockman is sane, but we do not know why he is sane. Ibsen does not profess to know how virtue and happiness are brought about, in the sense that he professes to know how our modern sexual tragedies are brought about. Falsehood works ruin in the pillars of society, but truth works equal ruin in the wild duck. There are no cardinal virtues of Ibsenism. There is no ideal man of Ibsen. All this is not only admitted, but vaunted, in the most valuable and thoughtful of all the eulogies upon Ibsen, Mr. Bernard Shaw's Quintessence of Ibsenism. Mr. Shaw sums up Ibsen's teaching in the phrase, The golden rule is that there is no golden rule. In his eyes, this absence of an enduring and positive ideal, this absence of a permanent key to virtue, is the one great Ibsen merit. I am not discussing now with any fullness whether this is so or not. All I venture to point out with an increased firmness is that this omission, good or bad, does leave us face to face with the problem of human consciousness filled with a very definite image of evil, and with no definite image of good. To us light must be henceforward the dark thing, the thing of which we cannot speak. To us, as Milton's devils in Pandemonian, it is the darkness that is visible. The human race, according to religion, fell once, and in falling gained knowledge of good and evil. Now we have fallen a second time, and only the knowledge of evil remains to us. A great silent collapse, an enormous unspoken disappointment, has in our time fallen on our northern civilization. All previous ages have sweated and been crucified in an attempt to realize what is really the right life, 
what was really the good man. A definite part of the modern world has come beyond question to the conclusion that there is no answer to these questions, that the most we can do is set up a few notice boards at places of obvious danger to warn men, for instance, against drinking themselves to death or ignoring the mere existence of their neighbors. Ibsen is the first to return from the baffled hunt to bring us the tidings of great failure. Every one of the popular modern phrases and ideals is a dodge in order to shirk the problem of what is good. We are fond of talking about liberty, that is, as we talk about, is a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. We are fond of talking about progress, that is a dodge, to avoid discussing what is good. We are fond of talking about education, and that is a dodge to avoid discussing what is good. The modern man says, let us leave all these arbitrary standards and embrace liberty. This is logically rendered, let us not decide what is good, but let it be considered good not to decide it. He says, away with your old moral formulas. I am for progress. This, logically stated, means, let us not settle what is good, but let us settle whether we are getting more of it. He says, neither in religion nor morality, my friend, lie the hopes of the race, but in education. This clearly expressed means, we cannot decide what is good, but let us give it to our children. Mr. H. G. Wells, that exceedingly clear-sighted man, has pointed out in a recent work that this has happened in connection with economic questions. The old economists, he says, made generalizations, and they were, in Mr. Wells' view, mostly wrong. But the new economists, he says, seem to have lost the power of making any generalizations at all, and they cover this incapacity with a general claim to be, in specific cases, regarded as experts, a claim proper enough in a hairdresser or a fashion physician, but indecent in a philosopher or a man of science. But in spite of the refreshing rationality with which Mr. Wells has indicated this, it must also be said that he himself has fallen into the same enormous modern error. In the opening pages of that excellent book, Mankind in the Making, he dismisses the ideals of art, religion, abstract morality, and the rest. And he says that he is going to consider men in their chief function, the function of parenthood. He is going to discuss life as a tissue of births. He is not going to ask what will produce satisfactory saints or satisfactory heroes, but what will produce satisfactory fathers and mothers. The whole is set forward so sensibly that it is a few moments at least before the reader realizes that it is another example of unconscious shirking. What is the good of begetting a man until we have settled what is the good of being a man? You are merely handing on to him a problem you dare not settle yourself. It is as if a man were asked, What is the use of a hammer? and answered, To make hammers. And when asked, And of those hammers, what is the use? answered, To make hammers again. Just as such a man would be perpetually putting off the question of the ultimate use of carpentry, so Mr. Wells and all the rest of us are by these phrases successfully putting off the question of the ultimate value of human life. The case of the general talk of progress is indeed an extreme one. 
As enunciated today, progress is simply a comparative of which we have not settled the superlative. We meet every ideal of religion, patriotism, beauty, or brute pleasure with the alternative ideal of progress, that is to say, of getting a great deal more of nobody knows what. Progress, properly understood, has indeed a most dignified and legitimate meaning, but as used in opposition to precise moral ideals, it is ludicrous. So far from it being the truth that the ideal of progress is to be set against that of ethical or religious finality, the reverse is the truth. Nobody has any business to use the word progress unless he has a definite creed and a cast-iron code of morals. Nobody can be progressive without being doctrinal. I might almost say that nobody can be progressive without being infallible, at any rate, without believing in some infallibility. For the progress, by its very name, indicates a direction, and the moment we are in the least doubtful about the direction, we become in the same degree doubtful about the progress. Never, perhaps, since the beginning of the world has there been an age that has less right to use the word progress than we. In the Catholic 12th century, in the philosophical 18th century, the direction may have been good or a bad one. Men may have differed more or less about how far they went and in what direction, but about the direction they did in the main agree, and consequently they had the genuine sensation of progress. But it is precisely about the direction that we disagree. Whether the future excellence lies in more law or less law, in more liberty or less liberty, whether property will be finally concentrated or finally cut up, whether sexual passion will reach its sanest in an almost virgin intellectualism or in a full animal freedom, whether we should love everybody with Tolstoy or spare nobody with Nietzsche, these are the things about which we are actually fighting most. It is not merely true that the age which has settled least what is progress is this progressive age. It is moreover true that the people who have settled least what is progress are the most progressive people in it. The ordinary mass, the men who have never troubled about progress, might be trusted perhaps to progress. The particular individuals who talk about progress would certainly fly to the four winds of heaven when the pistol shot started the race. I do not therefore say that the word progress is unmeaning. I say it is unmeaning without the previous definition of a moral doctrine, and that it can only be applied to groups of persons who hold that doctrine in common. Progress is not an illegitimate word, but it is logically evident that it is illegitimate for us. It is a sacred word, a word which could only rightly be used by rigid believers and in the ages of faith. End of chapter 2